Under the best circumstances, a chef's personal taste is on display every time he or she plates a dish. But what about their taste in things other than food? Does a chef's taste in, say, music have any relevance? We ran over in our aprons and everything because we were so late and we wanted to see the show. And these two women were standing in front of us. And it was really loud, but I heard one of them say, it smells like somebody's cooking a steak in here. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, not me, not me. You are listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South through the foods we eat. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm Tina Antolini. Today, Brett Anderson brings us a story about rock and roll, Southern food, Southern bohemias, and the T-shirt collection that ties it all together. Yes, T-shirts. Rock and roll tour shirts, to be precise. You no doubt have at least a few in your dresser be they tucked away relics from your nightclubbing past or still active parts of your everyday wardrobe. For Bill Smith, tour shirts have served both purposes, and arguably more. I've had these things in my closet for, well, for 30 years, some of them, and and they're all nasty because I've always worn them at work. It was sort of my trademark almost to walk around in rock and roll t-shirts. Bill is the chef at Crook's Corner, the James Beard award-winning Southern restaurant in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. His distinguished decades-long career in the kitchen sprang from an earlier career as a founder and co-owner of the Cat's Cradle. That's the preeminent live music venue in Chapel Hill and nearby Carborough. The town takes justifiable pride in its reputation as an incubator of musical talent. Thanks in no small part to the Cradle, Chapel Hill is also a magnet for touring bands. These are not the top 40 rock and country acts that play major arenas in nearby Raleigh and Greensboro. For example, a show Bill Smith says he loved? Body Count the legendary gangster rap and thrash metal band from Los Angeles. There goes the neighborhood. I don't remember anything specifically about it, it's just that it was the best show I've ever seen in my life. And everybody that was there almost agreed with that. And I've seen like the Rolling Stones when they did Let It Bleed tour and all that kind of stuff too. That was second, but that I see him body count was, it was just, I don't know, I just, the man was a genius. He was a genius. Bill did not abandon his passion for music when he sold the cradle, as locals call it, in the mid-80s to devote himself fully to his career as a chef. And this fandom may say as much about who Bill is as a chef as the food he actually cooks. Which brings us back to those t-shirts. When I sold it, I've never been made to pay to go in again. So when I would go to see a band I like, in order for the band to get some money, I would always buy their t-shirts. In the kitchens where Bill worked around Chapel Hill, these emblems of his enthusiasm became central to his professional identity. I've never been a chef jacket guy, so there's <laughs> always a nasty t-shirt and a filthy apron is what I'm known for. So, and then you wreck them. I mean, they get sauce all over them, or they get Clorox on them, or they, you know, they get torn up or they're burnt or whatever. So, This understandable wear and tear never put Smith in danger of running out of shirts. He goes to a lot of shows, and as he said, he bought shirts at a good number of them. So many that last year, when he decided to take measure of his collection, he filled three garbage bags full of these shirts, the big kind of garbage bags that you used to stuff with dead leaves in the fall. I've outgrown a lot of them, shall we say, but there was just like, they were, the closet was full and I was saying, God, I get rid of these. Figuring the bags of ratty shirts had to be worth more than what they would fetch at a garage sale, Smith came upon the idea of calling Steve Weiss. He's the curator of the Southern Folklife Collection at the University of North Carolina, whose campus is a short bike ride from Crook's Corner. Bill gave Steve a call. He said, do you want these t-shirts? I'm going to throw them out somehow. And he said, don't you dare, I'll be right over, sir. <laughs> Long story short, the Southern Folklife Collection acquired Bill's garbage bags full of rock and roll shirts, which is, well, weird. 
The collection is revered by people who study Southern culture. Its acquisition of Bill's t-shirt seemed to me to be akin to the Library of Congress grabbing hold of someone's stash of old beer cans and filing it away alongside its drafts of presidential speeches or something. This is the university where the first book and articles on blues were published by Howard Odom and Guy Johnson back in the 30s. So we're looking at ground zero for the study of both Southern music and the American South as a region. That's Bill Ferris, a professor of history at UNC and the senior associate director of the school's Center for the Study of the American South. Translation, he's a legend in the world of Southern cultural studies. I visited Professor Ferris at his home office in Chapel Hill. He explained how Bill Smith's garbage bags of t-shirts could be considered worthy of keeping company with the sort of material he's been collecting in over 50 years of scholarly work. Well, Bill Smith's collection is a very important collection because it represents the crossroads of food and music. And Bill is deeply invested in both of those worlds. The South is already adept at canonizing indigenous music like jazz, country, and bluegrass. Take Elizabeth Cotton, the legendary blues singer and guitarist, and a Chapel Hill native. Bill Smith pays local children to pick honeysuckle for his famous sorbet on the bike path named in Cotton's honor. But the underground punk and rock and roll for which Chapel Hill is famous has not traditionally enjoyed the same level of recognition. Ferris believes Bill Smith's t-shirts can help scholars recognize the value of modern Southern music, much in the same way Crook's Corner helped build a bridge between traditional Southern cooking and modern American cuisine. One of the mistakes we make is thinking that what is happening now is of no value and we need to go back and collect the older eras. I met Bill Smith at the Wilson Library on UNC's campus. The Folklife collection is there, and it was the first time Smith had seen his t-shirts since he donated them. They had been cleaned, folded, and stored inside ten neatly stacked boxes. They looked official with an official description pasted on one of the boxes. Retention rules, return any discards to the curator. Description, 300 t-shirts of rock bands who performed at the Cat's Cradle in Carver, North Carolina, circa 1980 to the present, collected by Bill Smith. They have all been laundered prior to donation. Stains are from cooking at Crook's Corner. <laughs> I should mention here that while Bill is a bohemian to his core, well-read and traveled, famously politically active, doesn't drive a car, he does not, in case you were wondering, look the part of a hipster. He's 66, tattoo-free as far as I can tell, and he carries around the extra pounds you'd expect of someone who has, for decades, presided over the kitchen of a restaurant famous for shrimp and grits and a pork schnitzel crusted with Swiss cheese. I've known Smith for years. We both, in fact, sit on the board of the Southern Foodways Alliance, the producers of this podcast. But I can't recall ever seeing him so animated as when we were going through those t-shirts. Sleazefest. This is great. This is a good one to start with. The shirt was emblazoned with that famous picture of Johnny Cash, indignantly flipping the bird to the camera. It was a 1998 shirt from Sleazefest, a festival held at a different local club called Local 506. The cradle isn't the only game in town. It was sensational. And it was the club was little, it was packed, and they'd have all these crazy bands from all over. They had people like the amazing Dolores and Hazel Atkins and, and uh, I don't know, Jack Black. The shirt contained the names of all that year's Sleazefest bands. Drive-By Truckers did a fabulous show, actually. Trailer Bride, a wonderful band from here. Truckadelic. Oh, uh, gosh, look at this. I wish I was there now. I'm so sorry. <laughs> we spent about 90 minutes doing this, opening boxes, unpacking and unfolding shirts, Smith narrating with the memories they evoked. He clutched one of the shirts to his chest after unfolding it. 
like it held the scent of an old lover. Butthole surfers. Check it out. <laughs> There's a time to f- and a time to cry, but the saw sleeps in Lee Harvey's grave! Oh, uh, this has got holes in it. I remember that they, uh, you can't do this anymore, but they used to fill the symbol up with a uh, lighter fluid and set fire to it when they played. <laughs> Against the law now. A very loud show, as I recall. Lemonheads. The t-shirt is from a tour from their album called Lick. Yeah, it says Lick on the back. And people would come up and lick me when I had it on. (laughs) As you can hear, Bill's musical tastes run toward the edgy. But they're also broad in the manner that the bookings of many clubs like The Cradle tended to be starting in the early and mid-1980s, when indie labels flourished in the wake of punk rock. Listening to Smith recite the names from T-shirt after sauce-stained T-shirt. Uh, Bad Mother Goose. This was um, sort of a reggae man. <laughs> I started to see his collection as so much more than the ephemera from the wardrobe of an unfancy dresser. Marsha Ball, hot tamale baby. <laughs> Long, tall Marsha Ball, they call her, too. Hey, big shot. Come on, show me what you got. Oh, shiny beast, Lord. I remember the shirt, but I don't remember the show, quite frankly. <laughs> We were drunk a lot there, so I was younger now. <laughs> Bill's shirts are a tangible, visual record of the sound of a southern bohemia. Oh, Pylon, a great band from Athens, Georgia. That is not long past. Hey, this is Arches of Loaf. Arches, oh, that's a great, great band. Uh, Icky Metal may be one of my favorite albums ever, easily. And is in fact still flourishing in southern towns and cities like Chapel Hill, Athens, Georgia, and Austin, Texas all of which have long been fertile incubators of Southern culture, particularly music and food. You know, the collector's collections as a whole are as unique as the individual items, Hmm. you know? That's Aaron Smithers, an assistant at the Southern Folklife Collection. He took me on a tour of the vast archive. He maybe didn't take a diary with him and write a record review or write a concert review every time he went to a concert, but he probably bought a CD and bought a T-shirt. And so you can, we can reconstruct calendars, we can look at visual design, we can look at what bands were coming to the Cat's Cradle through these years. I think that's worth, worth saving, and, and that's, that's worth contributing to um, the broader conversation of what music and life is like in Chapel Hill. Coming up... We'll go to both Crook's Corner and the Cat's Cradle to learn how Bill Smith got from rock club owner to distinguished Southern chef, and how the Southern Bohemia, where he's built his life, made it all possible. There is the sponsorship music, and today I want to tell you about something I look forward to every Tuesday. I get up, and in my email inbox, there's a link to a story waiting for me from The Bitter Southerner. It's a weekly magazine that only has a cover story and isn't on paper. That's Chuck Reese, who is the Bitter Southerner's editor. They do one long-form story a week. These are the sorts of Southern stories our sibling Print Quarterly, also called Gravy, tells. They tap into a version of this region that so many of us experience, and one that flies in the face of a lot of notions about the South. I think there are two dominant stereotypes about the South. One is the genteel South, and the other one is what I like to call the idiot South. You know, it's represented by things like, here comes Honey Boo Boo. And a lot of people have told us, wow, you guys have found a nice little niche for yourselves in between those two things. But we don't think it's a niche. We think it's like giant. 
there are so many stories uh, about so many people who don't fit stereotypes like that, and we're having a ball telling them. You can learn more at their website, bittersoutherner.com. Now back to Brett Anderson in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. No queremos papo, si o no. Doesn't want to cook duck this fall. We're in the kitchen at Crook's Corner, where Bill Smith and one of his chefs, Ricardo Rodriguez, are preparing for the evening service. Uh, I'm getting ready to roll tamales, is what I'm getting ready to do. Ricardo's making food for brunch tomorrow. That's a, a Mexican red rice that we serve in the morning. It's, it's great. He makes this great sauce for it. And, um, and we're not doing duck, so he doesn't need to worry about his, his protest today. Um, <laughs> Tamales were not on the menu when Crook's Corner was first opened in 1982 by Chef Bill Neal and his business partner, Gene Hamer, who is still there today. Neal had come to local prominence at another Chapel Hill place, La Residence, one of the first restaurants in the region to honestly employ French techniques. Neal carried that sensibility with him to Crook's, where he put southern flavors front and center. The Mexican-accented dishes, like the tamales, made their way onto the menu alongside the turnip green soup and the fried chicken livers sometime after Smith took over the kitchen. That was following Neil's death of AIDS in 1991. I already had Mexican guys in my kitchen, so their food sort of insinuates itself whether I want it to or not. But I actually made great efforts to not not completely give in to that kind of thing because we're a southern restaurant and that's what people expect. However, when I discovered that tamales were virtually indigenous to Mississippi, that was my entree. Bill took me down the street from Crooks to the latest location of the Cat's Cradle. The music club has moved several times over the years, most recently to nearby Carborough. Bill was born in Newburn, in eastern North Carolina. It's right in the middle of the coast of North Carolina. It's a lovely town, really. My family's been there forever, as I was reminded often while growing up. I mean, I grew up in the 50s there, really. It was a segregated South. I, I didn't have any contact with any black person ever, except for maids, you know. I had no friends other than... than people at the two churches my family went to and, uh, and people in school. But it wasn't, you know, but it was nice enough. It was, a, it was a good time to grow up, I suspect, if you were white. <laughs> Why did you eventually want to leave? Because I found it restrictive. I don't know. I have a rebellious nature, I think. I couldn't wait to get out of the t- place where I grew up. You know, as, you know, I guess a lot of people are like that. But this is where everybody weird in North Carolina came in those days because you could do, people didn't care what you did. The cradle was empty save for some musicians running through a sound check for that night's show. The original cradle was much smaller than this one. It was only big enough to accommodate 40 people, Bill said, where the capacity at the current club is 750. The first location opened not long after he flamed out as a student at UNC. When, we, when I owned the cradle, there were three of us that owned it, and um, we could never make any money with it, so we all had to like work in restaurants to keep it afloat. We had to pay, that's how we paid the taxes, because we, we, didn't, we didn't keep very good records, and we kept getting in trouble. The, the cradle never had any money, because we didn't know what we were doing, so I just waited tables and paid the bills. And. The relatively low cost of living in Chapel Hill at the time made all of this possible. You could work a couple of shifts a week and live very well, and party the rest of the week. I mean, it's like a college thing to do, but you could do that. I mean, you could, you could make money, save money, have a nice house, with, live with a bunch of your friends, and go out every night and restaurants were probably the best place to to set yourself up like that. Bill Smith eventually made his way from waitering jobs to the kitchen and ultimately a job at La Residence, cooking for Bill Neal. Neal ran the restaurant with his wife, Morton. We did everything by hand. Everything was homemade by hand, blah, blah, blah. And so when we made things, they were irregular and lopsided and all that stuff. And he would always say, well, you know, if you want it, if it's homemade, you want it to look homemade. And so (laughs) that was was sort of a nice bit of advice I've always liked, yeah. So we'd have all these pretty tarts and stuff, but they were never round or, you know, or, or level or anything like that. But 
That was like grandma made them or whatever. So. You can hear the lingering presence of the young introvert turned punk rocker in the way Smith talks about cooking. He's the opposite of pretentious, unwilling to put his craft up high on a pedestal. When he stopped being a club owner, he discovered just how many people occupied both the music and restaurant worlds. There was a bunch of rock and rollers, which has always been the case here. I've only got one right now, but I have had nearly all, but there have been times. You had entire staffs of musicians? I think pro- probably, or hangers-on, you know, or, you know. <laughs> and with a few art historians, it seems like there's always one or two of those for some reason. Artistic communities cross-pollinated. Every facet of Smith's career in Chapel Hill contains examples of it. This is not terribly notable in and of itself. The struggling actress, cellist, and novelist waiting tables is a cliché for a reason. But the connection between restaurants and music feels particularly tight in Chapel Hill. An early iteration of The Cradle, in fact, was attached to Mama Dips, a revered local soul food institution that's still open today. And more generally, people who get a rush from the clamor of a busy restaurant kitchen are more apt to feel something similar in a show at a rock club. When you work in a restaurant, going out to see a band afterwards can be actually like the perfect timing and the perfect activity to walk out of a kitchen and then you go to another situation where things are already in progress and it's like a great continuation of your night. That's Andrea Rusing, the chef and owner of Lantern. The restaurant is just down the street from Crooks. This seems to be the case with just about everything in Chapel Hill. Lantern is pan-Asian. Andrea popped a Szechuan peppercorn into my mouth as soon as I walked in the door. She grew up in New Jersey and was living in New York City just before moving to Chapel Hill in the mid-90s. Andrea's part of a generation of chefs who've established themselves in the Chapel Hill that Bill Smith helped create, first at the Cradle and then at Crook's Corner. I was sick of living in New York and decided that I wanted to get out of the city and kind of see if I could survive outside of New York and what that would be like and live a life that my father described, see what the rest of America, what the real America is really like. Um, And I was dating Mac, and so um, I came down here for the summer and ended up never leaving. Mac is Mac McCann, the frontman in Superchunk, one of the Chapel Hill scene's most successful bands. He's also one of the founders and owners of Merge Records, among the country's most influential independent record labels. Arcade Fire, Spoon, and Magnetic Fields are just a few of the better-known artists in Merge's stable. Andrea is soon to open a new restaurant in nearby Durham, and the career she's built for herself was inspired in part by observing at close range the opportunities Chapel Hill offered Mac. Seeing Mac and what he kind of perceived work to be was really inspiring to me because there was no line for him between work and the rest of his life. He inspired me a lot because he never saw work as work. He saw, he just kind of does the stuff that he likes to do and then worries about getting paid for it later. And I think while it's harder to just do that with food, you actually have to make something and sell it and, and, and have somewhat of a profit on it. I think, you know, music in some ways is not totally different than that. Andrea moved to Chapel Hill for love, obviously. But to hear her talk about the decision, she was also attracted by many of the same things that attracted Bill Smith almost 30 years before. The music and food, sure, but also the bookstores, the low cost of real estate, and the liberal communities. All of those things tend to sprout where academics are partaking in the life of the mind. In short, she was attracted to Chapel Hill, the hothouse of creativity. It's one Bill Ferris argues is among many similar communities in the region that have served as crucial incubators, not just of Southern culture, but the progressive politics that tend to bloom around it. 
Southern Bohemia is probably the least understood part of the American South, and I would argue the most important. And I think it's a key to understanding the creative process. We can't understand William Faulkner apart from his years in New Orleans, in the French Quarter, in the Southern Bohemian worlds there, that allowed him to expand beyond the worlds of Oxford and see a much broader vision of what life and art could be. This broader vision of what life and art can be is a driving force behind the music that Bill Smith has been drawn to his entire life in Chapel Hill, created by musicians working outside the boundaries of the mainstream. And it's not hard to see that spirit living on at Crick's Corner, where I met Smith for dinner later that night. He'd changed out of his Merge Records t-shirt to eat with us in the dining room. It's a treat he said he affords himself a couple times a year, albeit while drinking from the same stash of Pabst Blue Ribbon he provides his kitchen staff. In recent years, his chefs have gone from being comprised almost entirely of musicians and struggling academics to Mexican immigrants, many of them using their wages to help provide for family back home. You can see their influence on the menu. The tamales are delicious. And Bill's respect for his staff is obvious in the way he interacts with them. They're friends and equals as opposed to underlings. They are, like him, pilgrims attracted to the southern Bohemia for opportunities, complicated as they may be. Bill's embrace of these immigrant chefs, it seems, is a way to pass along something Chapel Hill gave to him, the chance to live a life that he couldn't live anywhere else. Brett Anderson is the restaurant critic and features writer at NOLA.com, the Times Picayune in New Orleans. Music from this episode was kind of the most badass music we have had on a gravy episode to date. It was by Superchunk, Body Count, Elizabeth Cotton, Drive-By Truckers, Butthole Surfers, Lemonheads, Marsha Ball, Pylon, Archers of Loaf, Blue Dot Sessions, and Corrosion of Conformity. You can find a Spotify playlist of a bunch of that music, plus a little extra, on our website, southernfoodways.org. Oh, and our sponsorship music is by Jazar. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy, but first... There are so many heroes of Southern food that haven't gotten widespread recognition for the work they've done. For years, people have been working hard behind the scenes in kitchens and on farms to put the food of this region on our plates. One of the things I love that the Southern Foodways Alliance does is give out awards to these folks. For example, a few years ago, the SFA gave a Ruth Fertel Keeper of the Flame Award to Gino Lee, his family has been making pig ear sandwiches in Jackson, Mississippi, for four generations. So one ear will actually make three sandwiches. No way. Yeah. Then after we um, cut them into threes, we still have 30 pounds of ears. We put it into one huge pressure cooker and pressure cook them for about two hours. So that cuts down on the boiling time that, from, that your grandfather had to do. From two days to two hours. That's right. <laughs> You can support the work the SFA does honoring people like Gino Lee by becoming a member. Learn more at southernfoodways.org. On the next episode of Gravy, what you knew and what you didn't know about Bourbon Street. Bourbon Street excels at giving the people what they want. People don't come to Bourbon Street to push their intellectual envelope. They come here to take a break from such from such endeavors. You might want a drink 
to accompany that one. You're listening to Gravy. I'm Tina Antolini for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your daily life, please remember, make cornbread, not war.